0: According to the website at EdgarCasey.org, Edgar Casey was the most documented psychic of the 20th century, giving us a record of 14,306 readings that concentrated mainly on a wide range of topics, including healing, philosophy and reincarnation, ancient mysteries and civilizations, dreams and dream interpretation, ESP and psychic phenomena, and spiritual growth, meditation, and prayer. With these readings, Casey also answered, or tried to answer, every mystery of life that we've ever pondered, questions and answers which are the subjects of countless books and studies, ranging from ancient civilizations to reincarnation to our purpose on Earth. I've always been fascinated with certain subjects, all of which Edgar Casey has contributed to greatly through the readings he has given us, so many readings, in fact, that it requires a huge library and research center to store them all. And we're there for the next few days at the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach, Virginia, to speak with authors, researchers, and experts on these subjects. I can promise you that this journey we're about to take is one of the most exciting ones we've ever hosted at 1001 Heroes. So find a comfortable place and get ready to listen to our first installment in this series. We're with Don Carroll today at the Edgar Casey Center, correctly known as the Association for Research and Enlightenment in Virginia Beach. Donald B. Carroll spent his career working in fire and rescue as a district chief, academy instructor, and paramedic. During those 30 years, he raised a family and pursued the meaning of life through extended study into the Edgar Casey readings and other spiritual, scientific, and philosophical materials. Today, Carol is a regular speaker and writer of metaphysical topics from Casey to the Kundalini. He spent 10 years researching and writing his book, Sacred Geometry and Spiritual Symbolism, The Blueprint for Creation. Carroll is also an international tour leader for the Nonprofit Association for Research and Enlightenment, visiting sites of a spiritual nature across the globe. He's a regular presenter at ARE conferences in Virginia Beach and across the United States. His website? is DonaldBCarroll.com, spelled C-A-R-R-O-L-L. Donald, it's great to be with you here today and for the next few days as we introduce our fans worldwide to you and the man who is recognized as one of the most prolific psychics of the 20th century, Edgar Casey.
1: John, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. It's a great honor and a joy to be able to share this information that it's just, I find so incredible and fascinating.
0: Don, since this episode will be the first in our series, can you fill us in on how you first became aware of Edgar Casey? explain who Edgar Casey was, his background, what he accomplished, and how his reputation as a leading psychic and medical clairvoyant has grown over the years? Thank you, John.
1: It, it, it really is an incredible story, and I think everyone that comes into this material has similar stories. Uh, mine was uh back in the 70s finding a book by written by Jess Stern called The Sleeping Prophet one of the biographies on Edgar Casey uh that caught my attention and as i r- picked it up and began to read it ended up i think sitting 6 hours and reading almost the whole book in one sitting i was just so captivated by it about this uh Gentleman Edgar Casey, that you know had this intuitive psychic ability. What first really resonated so much for me about it was uh, his spiritual philosophy. Uh, I think it's something that we're all go through our lives trying to understand and get a grasp of what what our purpose, what we're all about. And reading this uh, book by Jess Stern really brought spirituality in a very to, a cohesive framework to me that really resonated and made sense. It brought the pieces of the puzzle together. And, you know, as, as I read this and, and actually read it again, because it was so perfect in making sense of, uh, of spirituality in my case, at least. And I found for many others that I began pursuing, who is this gentleman, you know, finding out that here's this, uh, man born in 1877 in Kentucky, who apparently had this gift early on in life that fortunately they pursued. And for about 42, 43 years, he gave these psychic readings over the 14,000 of them. And fortunately, people kept records of it. And he kept records of it, which is really, if you think about it, for a psychic, taking themselves to task, as you've mentioned, probably the most documented one in the 20th century, probably almost any century, uh, other than, say, Nostradamus, because it adds up to over 50,000 pages of material. And people are continually researching them and finding incredible validating information in them, and others trying to see if they can find him wrong. And it, it stood the test of time, and is really a testimony to his
0: work itself and his accuracy. The title of today's episode is the Edgar Casey Reading's Ancient mysteries and civilizations, Don, I read some news articles recently regarding some possible new discoveries at stonehenge there's apparently more there than meets the eye. What did Edgar Casey say about stonehenge well, thank you
1: john uh, that, That's a really uh, fascinating area in the Casey readings. He never specifically uh, cited Stonehenge itself, but he did speak about the altars and the stones. Uh, altars being built in that Salisbury area because what he talks about them being uh, created and built was on the Salisbury Plain, which is where you find Stonehenge. He talked about Somerset also, which is in that surrounding area, and that when they were being built, it was from a lost tribe of Israel, of Judah, back around 3000 BC. Really fascinatingly fitting the timeline there and he spoke about these stone altars, and it was plural in the readings, altars. And for the longest time, everyone felt Stonehenge on the Salisbury Plain just stood alone out there. And as you pointed out, the recent studies, they're doing the Stonehenge hidden studies of ground-penetrating radar, found other multiple altars on Salisbury Plain they didn't know were there, kind of fitting into Edgar Casey's mention of
0: multiple altars that, uh, until now, weren't aware of. Casey gave a reading to a woman describing her in a past life as a Maya priestess in the ancient city of Itchcabal. The Mexico National Institute of Archaeology and History started excavating a Mayan city in the Yucatan in 2009, which they had first discovered in 1995. They decided to name it Ixcobal then. Can you fill us in on this story from Casey's readings? Also, what were a few of his more famous past life readings as they applied to ancient civilizations? Yeah, the, the ich Cabal uh, discovery, it just blows
1: me away. It really also shows how, say, how alive the readings are because y- you you constantly have to look through them. If you'd researched these readings 10 years ago, you wouldn't be able to find these studies being done by the uh, National Institute in Mexico. I was looking... At a Casey reading, where he talked about a woman that in a past life was a, a Mayan priestess, and he named the city, the Maya city in the Yucatan. Actually, said the Yucatan uh, that uh, she lived in, and the city was his name was Ichkabal, as you noted. Well, as I researched this again, and I'd researched it in the past, but now more recently on Google, I got hits for it, which kind of set me back, interestingly enough. And then as I pulled these articles up, they were uh, in Spanish. Uh, Thankfully for Google Translate, uh, I was able to read them, and they were from Mexico's National Institute of Archaeology and History, talking about an ancient Mayan city that they discovered in the Yucatan. And uh, they discovered it in 1995. They were just starting to excavate it in 2009. It's not open to the public yet. And I I was just this is not your common everyday name. And here it is in the Edgar Casey readings. And here is Mexico's National Institute discovering a mine city of the same name. I mean, I even went to the point that, well, let me research some more here. This was amazing enough. But perhaps there was some chance that Edgar could have read about this uh, back in the day uh, in some article. And as I translated more articles from uh, from the National Institute... One of them states that they decided to name it that name, Ichkabal, in 1995. So I was a bit stunned by it. I mean, this is 1995. Edgar Casey himself died in uh, 1945. Uh, the reading was in 1942. And here... They're stating they gave this name to it in 1995, and it's a Mayakichi that translates to the geography of the area, saying that meaning the city is between the two low places. So you have a past-life reading, and then the prescience of naming this city that doesn't get its name for almost 50 years later. This is absolutely amazing, even to the fact that if you'd looked in the readings for this and tried to research this five years earlier— you wouldn't find information on it. So it's kind of science and and research and archaeology are almost catching up to the readings.
0: Casey gave us a large number of readings, past life readings, that placed people in ancient Egypt. Was Egypt the first ancient civilization?
1: Yes, I would say so. Egypt is considered uh, by many and by archaeologists as one of the most ancient uh, civilizations of our time, they placed the dynasties of it at about three thousand BC, and in most, I would say timelines, perhaps Samaria, Babylonia uh, included also are put as the earliest quote unquote civilizations." and Casey did give many readings not only to, where many past lives seemed to be in, in that ancient Egypt time, but fortunately, they pursued uh, readings just about the civilization itself uh, with that. What was fascinating uh, with it is since they started getting some past life readings on it, they did pursue the ancient Egyptian civilization as a whole through the Edgar Cayce uh, psychic readings, uh, which really put them back on their heels. But fortunately, they pursued it even more. There were over 1,200 readings that were related to uh, ancient Egypt. One of the first things was that in Edgar's psychic readings, he put the Zeb or the first time, the golden age and beginning of ancient Egypt, at about 10,500 and had linked it to Atlantis, uh, which was in the process of, in its final destruction by the Casey readings, uh, at that time, and some of the refugees or immigrants, you might say, were coming into ancient Egypt and were involving themselves, along with Edgar Casey in a past life in this civilization, and putting it seven, eight thousand years earlier than what uh, your Egyptologists do in a fascinating way. When you know Edgar talked about the uh, ancient Egypt and and how Atlantis was connected to it, and, and with the fall of Atlantis. Part of that was the loss of the spiritual path, the, the idea of unity and oneness, that they're actually much closer connected to spirituality, uh, consciousness, if you will, a higher consciousness or universal consciousness, that you could say our, the physicality was just a, a temporary way station, that it's about evolvement, not only physically, but evolvement in conscious spirituality is that is our true destination is not to be in physicality. I think one of the fascinating things with the Edgar Casey readings is, is that in his studies of ancient or the readings on ancient civilizations, but particularly the Egypt one that really kind of is a crown jewel in the readings, was their uh, bringing together both science and spirituality in these ancient civilizations and that these civilizations collapsed Usually because of the loss of that unity and oneness, that loss of spirituality, as they became too physical, too uh, material conscious, they would collapse. We almost see that you know, today, fall of the Roman Empire, things along those lines, but he was talking at Atlantis, uh, they had gotten too physical and were forgetting their spirituality, that they used to have that contact with that higher consciousness, what uh, Edgar called about the communion of saints, uh, where they were able to connect with that higher consciousness, that universal consciousness, if you will. And as they lost that, that was kind of the failure of the civilization, and it also caused a physical collapse of of Atlantis itself. And Edgar put that about 10,500 ninety uh, about a thousand years earlier than plato in his in his writings on it uh interestingly enough, but some of the uh refugees, if you will, or the, some of the ones that are migrating from there one of the places they came to Egypt with some of their information, but the key was it was always bringing that science and spirituality together in their construction in their in their engineering but in their lives, and it was when these would separate uh, even in Egypt Egypt had that golden era that Zebtepi as it's called in the hieroglyphs and Edgar Casey puts it about that 10500 period what he also puts as the construction of the great pyramid but as that was lost through the millennia that spirituality and, and again that that almost repeating cycle of of into getting too physical that this also collapsed and civilization, humanity as a whole, seems to be on this journey of continuing that cycle of bringing ourselves back to that higher consciousness and greater spirituality. You, you find it in the K.C. readings, the theme, what you might say, called bringing heaven and earth together while we're here, you know, and to spiritualize ourselves rather than materialize ourselves is the journey of humanity in our evolution, our conscious evolution. I mean, that not only from Edgar Casey, but interestingly, even after he passed in 1945, then you have great thinkers and writers like Thiel Chardin, who writes exactly about that, who was a world-famous paleontologist and anthropologist and Jesuit priest that wrote in the 50s that it's about not only physical evolution, but our spiritual and conscious evolution raising to that point of a God consciousness. I mean, years after Edgar was speaking about all this, and Alvis Huxley in his book Divine Within and others stating the same thing, that our potential to be part of the universal mind is our goal, our evolution in consciousness. So it's just fascinating how you can see, not only from the Casey readings, but from great thinkers that came after him bringing across the
0: same concepts. In a Casey reading in the early 1920s, Casey said that all is vibratory and that all matter comes from vibration. Quantum mechanics was in its infancy, and almost 85 years later, cosmologists are also saying our universe and matter come from vibration. Can you go into depth on this?
1: Well, thank you. I'll go into depth, as any layman can you know, go into depth, in quantum physics. It's a fascinating subject, but I kind of uh, lean back on uh, Richard Feynman, who uh, was one of the Nobel Prize-winning quantum physics, that tells people that anyone that tells you they understand quantum mechanics or quantum physics is lying. <laughs> because it. But it is an incredible area, but as you said, here in the early 1920s, When quantum mechanics and quantum physics, that whole idea uh, was just in its infancy and just starting uh, that incredible area of science that was turning Newtonian physics on its head was just starting to come about. Edgar Cayce is giving readings that all matter materializes from vibration, that all is vibratory and that all vibration will come into materiality, uh, into matter. And that's where our universe came from. As stated in the readings, and here, 85 years later, NASA, the CERN Institute, uh, they're coming to the conclusion of the Big Bang. You know, uh, that is accepted. Is that is actually the case? That just recently was the Planck spacecraft project, uh, and one of their studies have come back that now the scientists are saying that our universe was created from vibration. I mean, I just shake my head in in awe of that. Well, not only Edgar Casey, but ancient spiritual philosophies had it right about the creation of the universe. And as I'd kind of said earlier, science is catching up in many cases to the Edgar Casey readings. Whether it's the discovery of ancient cities or concepts like vibration creating matter, that were just seem so out of their league and and some people say impossible. As science catches up, we're finding, you know, it's not, not only not impossible, it's
0: correct. Casey gave a date of approximately 10,500 BC for the construction of the Great Pyramid. Other independent researchers have found evidence to support that date. This is one of your areas of specialty. What's your opinion on that? Again, another one of those just
1: amazing Edgar Casey readings. Uh, here he is, eighty-five, ninety years ago, saying that the Great Pyramid was constructed around ten thousand five hundred B.C. and and whether even now or back then, you know, people look at that as well. That's impossible. That's you know, we didn't have civilizations that could do that back then. Your mainstream Egyptologists give the date of about 2500 B.C. for the uh, Great Pyramid and actually for the Sphinx that's in front of it. They feel they're kind of connected and they were built in that same time period. And... That still is the, the standard that uh, the Egyptologists use. But about oh, 15, 20 years ago, some independent researchers wrote a book, uh, their research. And this was Graham Hancock and Robert Bouval finding that the Sphinx may, you know, connected to the Great Pyramid, may have been first created that many years ago, 10,500. And as they did their research, and much of it was tied to the astronomy at the time, that fascinatingly, what I've called earlier Zeb that that golden era of ancient Egypt, at 10,500, as that sphinx, that lion in the sand, faced due east, Leo, the constellation, the lion in the sky, was coming up out of the horizon from the due east. So they would be facing each other. And it only happens... Every t- twenty-six thousand years, and this is one of the. This was that time that it occurred. And as they researched this, that you know, again connecting this because the Great Pyramid and pyramids as a whole are known as places to where heaven and earth come together. It's uh, Axis Mundi, where heaven and earth connect together. That's their purpose, and that is from the Egyptologists themselves. And this would be that perfect example of tying heaven and earth together with that terrestrial lion and that celestial lion. Uh, coming together, and it only occurs at this time. And Graham Hancock and Bovalv themselves, they they didn't realize that there were Edgar Cayce readings giving that date. It actually kind of took them back, and and they were concerned that a psychic was giving the date that they're finding through, you know, celestial science. But they did include that, and it helped validate what Edgar Cayce was saying. And they even continued, they got a, a Dr. Robert Schock, who is a double PhD, teaches at Boston College, uh, he has a PhD in geophysics and geology to come over even to look at the site. And being, you know, this this hard science geologist, uh, looking at the Great Pyramid and looking at more specifically the Sphinx and the surrounding area, and being very careful in his science, said the the Sphinx is at least 5,000 years older than uh, it's dated by the Egyptologists, putting it to 7,000, 8,000 B.C. But he continues, he'll say that very firmly, and he continues saying easily in the uh, 10,500 B.C. period. So here is, and when Egyptologists, Kind of went up in arms about this as a geologist. He just said, "I don't know what your papyrus says. It's just basically I'm reading the rocks. I'm reading the geology, telling me this." So I find it just incredible that we have not only the heavens in in the constellations, but the earth itself telling us, giving this date of ten thousand five hundred. You know, and as you'd mentioned. I started pursuing this myself, and you can get programs out there, and there's some great software. I use a CyberSky 5, where I can, with software and com- computer, look at the sky anywhere in the world from 15,000 B.C. to 15,000 A.D. And what I found in, uh, was that at this time period, not only did Leo do what it said, but you had Two amazing star asterisms that uh, were going on at that period of time very uniquely. You had what we call the Summer Triangle today, a triangle of stars that astronomers call the Summer Triangle, uh, was their circumpolar stars. That would have been their Polaris, shall we say, that we use today to navigate by. That was the northern uh, set of stars they had back then. Uh, They didn't have a Polaris because of the shift of stars. And then in the southern sky, you had the great southern or winter triangle of of stars. So not only did you have the east and west of Leo, and we talked about the geology at this 10,500, you have this unique time of a triangle of stars or pyramid because that would be very important to the ancient Egyptians both in the north and south. That were also then connected by the Milky Way running north and south. A very unique period tying this all together. I mean, there's much more, but that gives you an idea. Then Robert Bouval and Gilbert wrote another book about uh, the Orion mystery that Orion, the constellation in the southern sky, connects to the three pyramids at. 10,000, that the belt stars connect. So you have all these connections, both earthly and heavenly, shall we say, at this 10,500 period that Edgar Cayce spoke about. I, I just find it incredible. And the big argument that uh, archaeologists used for the longest time was that they didn't have civilizations. They didn't have the um, people at 10,000 to be able to create megalithic structures that you couldn't basically have megalithic structures prior to 3000 BC. Well, that kind of got all thrown out uh, about 10 years or so ago with Gobekli Tepe in Turkey. Uh, Very briefly, this is a site in Turkey about 40 miles from the Syrian border that is basically these stone hinge structures, these megalithic stones and circles. And not just one, they've excavated four of them. There are 17 more that are still buried, that they believe are 17 more from the ground penetrating radar. And they have confidently dated uh, these structures back to 9600 BC. Archaeology is kind of back on its heels right now because suddenly megalithic structures are being built. At the time, Edgar Casey talked about the Greek period that they said couldn't be built. And actually, there's a very good uh, special by National Geographic called uh, On Gobekli Tepe that says from the depth and the site where the other buried ones are are at that they could well be another 3,000 years older. So there is confirmation and is evidence that there were civilizations could do, build these megalithic
0: structures at the time that Casey spoke about. While we're on the subject of pyramids, Casey in a reading, noted the unit of measurement that the ancient Egyptians used in temple and pyramid construction as 27.5 inches. Research and evidence has shown this to work at multiple sites around the world in highly significant manners with both a science and a spiritual purpose. Explain.
1: Yes, again, here is where, you know, Edgar Cayce, in in a simple reading, and you almost go right by it. You know, he's talking about ancient Egypt, and um, people are asking him questions. And, of course, in this kind of self-hypnotic trance state, he's answering what they're asking. And sometimes you're wishing, oh, why didn't they ask him this other question? But he would actually sometimes give asides in this. And in this one case, he talked about that, you know, the construction of the pyramids and temples and mentions the unit of measurement of 27 and a half inches and called it, again, they're writing this down phonetically, a myrrh, as in frankincense and myrrh, for pronunciation purposes. And, of course, that caught my attention. This is very specific. This isn't, you know, something general, 27 and a half inches. And as I first look into it, your Egyptologists say No. They're, that's not the unit of measurement they use. They don't even talk about that unit of measurement, but fortunately, because of my dog-worrying-a-bone attitude as I continued doggedly looking into this, I discovered that in the deep archives of Egyptology, there is a unit of measurement of 27 and a half inches that they do use. And I actually found, uh, with the help of uh, writings of others, Dr. Livio Siccini for one, that there's actually a physical example of one in the Metropolitan Museum of New York, which I went to and hunted down and discovered. And yes, there is a measuring rod of twenty seven and a half inches. So with that, you know, as I pursued that, found that it works quite well when you use it to measure the Great Pyramid. Uh, A very brief example would be if you use that to measure the height of the Great Pyramid, twenty seven and a half inches, you get then two hundred and ten of those units of measurements. Curiously, Egyptologists themselves believe there were originally 210 tiers. So this coincidentally matches up with uh, what Egyptologists say on that. When you measure its width, you get 330 of these. Uh, And so it it fits quite perfectly uh, with this in in incredible ways. And what really brought it it to my attention was I started then having to study where the measurements come from. Why did we use even 27 half inches? And actually it was because other people were like, well, what's the big deal? It's a unit of measurement. People forget that you don't build structures such as great pyramids or Mayan pyramids that last thousands upon thousands of years unless you're also incredible engineers and architects. So you're going to have measurements and they're going to have purpose. Well, looking at the measurements, you know, prior to the metric system we have today, it was feet and inches and what have you. Well, they come from body parts. It's called a foot. It was codified off the length of the foot. We still measure horses by hand, 16, 18-hand horse. You know, if you want a yard of fabric, you go from your center of the chest out to your arm, the end of your fingertip. We have all this. The word cubit actually means elbow. So cubits are generally considered fingertip to elbow. So I was like, well, where does 27 and a half inches fit in? Incredibly, it's almost the perfect length for the length of the spine. And for sacred sites, this made such elegant sense to use that measurement because the spine, the kundalini, the central nervous system, I mean, in the Eastern traditions, it's very straightforward that, you know, you raise your consciousness up, as I spoke about earlier, through meditation, through rising the spiritual uh, energy up through your spine. And here we have this perfect length for sacred sites to do exactly that, and it fits quite well because at three hundred and thirty I said the the width of the great pyramid was interesting enough, you have thirty three vertebrae, so it fits in that incredible way, and there's much more, and actually even though they don't they say that that's not the unit measured. I did find in a book by Dr. Uh, Flinders Petrie, who is considered the father of modern Egyptology, who states that there were many different measurements used in the Great Pyramid other than digits ones, and that they probably were used. So there is evidence for that. But then, what amazed me as you as I pursued this, was that wondering that, well, gee, I wonder if this measurement could use work in other sites. You know, first, I got very fortunate because in the Maya, the other great pyramid builders that you know most people are aware of the Mayan archaeologists had done my homework for me. They had done the same thing. They were looking at measurements that the Mayan culture had to use to build their incredible structures, and they'd come to the conclusion after researching three different Maya, ancient Maya cities and ten buildings to figure out a measurement they came to, and it's a plus or minus like five uh, centimeters, but they came to a unit of length that is about 55 inches, and they call it a zapal, and I just had a smile because 55 inches is two of those Kc spinal cubits of 27 and a half inches. And they themselves said they put it in to see if that measurement would work in their structures, and they did because they got significant results, such as 9 and 13, nine the zapals across, or 13 zapals across. In their example of the El Castillo Pyramid in Chichen Itza, the, the serpent, the Khan Pyramid, the Flying Serpent Pyramid, at the top of it was... Uh, 13 is the piles across, and the small temple on that sat there was nine. And these were significant numbers to the Mayas of their underworlds and heavens. So they fit, said it fit correctly. And again, another site of where initiation and where heaven and earth is by the culture is considered to come together. And one of the most important and significant symbols of the Mayan culture is the serpent bar. And from their archaeologists, the serpent bar represents. The connection, the axis mundi of the holder, bringing of heaven and earth together within themselves. And this is from their anthropology and archaeology. But what's interesting, it is a double serpent bar. There's a serpent head coming out at each end. Hence the two kundalini. Hence the fifty-five inches. It elegantly fits the same philosophy. And of course, I couldn't leave it there. I was like, hmm, this is these sites are. This is fitting. I mean, one is in Africa, in Egypt, and the other is in South America. I wonder where else. Well, I'd been to Stonehenge, so I said, what about Stonehenge? And this is the one that just kind of brings it right to you and in, in, square in the middle of your forehead, because you know, Stonehenge's circles. You know, we probably all know the blue stone circle and the Saracen stone, the great stone circle, those two stone circles. Well, there are the remains of circles from wooden posts, uh that are there also and I, fortunately, i was able to get a archaeological survey map of all these circles and their measurements accurate measurements and I just sat back. I did these numbers so many times because I was just in awe of the results. And you only get these using this KC 27 and a half, you know, spinal measurement. You know, when I talk about this uh, 27 twenty seven and a half unit of measurement, it's something we're not used to. We're used to feet. We're used to yards. Oh, this is a 100-yard football field or 300-foot uh, length of a football field or 100 yards. You know, when I'm talking using now a measurement of 27 and a half inches, think of it in that fashion, rather those stone circles and wooden circles of, of Stonehenge being 75 feet, 100 feet, you know, 120 feet. Look at them. Well, now we're going to use 27 and inches instead. Then your results are suddenly 33, 44, 55, 66, 77. I think this is, goes way beyond coincidence. There was purpose and they're giving us that message in the results of those measurements.
0: One of the most common themes in everything we've discussed today can be found in the human journey, that its purpose is to bring heaven and earth together within ourselves in our journey, to spiritualize our physicality. Not only a theme in the readings, but one that's found through cultures and their ancient sites and shared symbolism. Explain this along with the discovery of the Magdala stone it is really an
1: incredible theme, and it makes so much sense. The, you know, if you think of uh, humanity and our purpose, or not only as humanity as a whole, but our individual purposes of, of where are we going? Why are we here? And when you start researching these ancient cultures, not only from the Casey readings, but from ancient cultures themselves, and you see sites like the Great Pyramid. And that the Egyptologists themselves say, yes, it was a place where heaven and earth came together. It was an Axis Mundi to bring that together. Actually, the purpose, the ancient Egyptians themselves would tell you that to unite parts of their soul, what they call their ka and their ba, you know, the ka being the divine part of their soul and their ba being an individual part of their soul. Their goal was to unite them together and become an Akkar Naku, which translated as a brilliant being of light of bringing that heaven and earth together and this wasn't you know afterwards this is now I mean they have you know right there very clear purpose. Uh, In that, and you see it uh, in other cultures of where, where did they go to worship? You look at the Bible; they always went to the high places. Why were high places chosen? That's where heaven and earth came together. It was to bring that together uh, within ourselves. That was our purpose, and you'll find it time and time again in cultures. If you go to down to the Incas, up at Machu Picchu, at the top of it is another astronomy site called the Hitching Post of the Sun. It was to tie heaven and earth together, and these were all symbolic of doing that within ourselves, to spiritualize ourselves, to spiritualize matter, physicality, if you will. It's the same symbolism, and you see it that symbolism in spiritual philosophies throughout the world, throughout cultures, throughout time and space. And throughout the Casey readings, interestingly, some of his greatest readings we talked about uh, were his ancient Egyptian readings. You might call them the bookends of his readings. And then he did a series of readings on the interpretation of the Bible revelation. And, you know, you might say one from 10,000 B.C., one the other to the end of times, these bookends. And the results are the same. His interpretation was of revelation in that example was to... It was a symbolic journey or a symbolic struggle to spiritualize ourselves while we were on earth. Ancient Egypt, the purpose of that initiation site was to bring heaven and earth to within ourselves. Interestingly, people didn't realize it at the time, Edgar Cayce's past life that he interpreted of himself at that time, his name was Rata, involved in the Great Pyramid. And Ra, we know as the sun god of the ancient Egyptians, but prior to that name or appellation that Ra got the meaning of Ra was more than the sun was, but also of the heavens. And Ta if you look in the hieroglyphs means land. So Rata basically itself was bringing heaven and earth together in his name. And as to the Magdala stone, this is just an incredible recent study, uh, excuse me, uh, recent discovery in Israel, in northern Israel, in the ancient town of Magdala, as in Mary of Magdala. They're in the process of excavating a first century uh, A.D synagogue there, and if they're excavating the remains of it, and they've been able to date it to the first century. I mean, even down to the point they have found coins in it dated to 29 AD, really the time of Christ, the time of Jesus, that Mary Magdala, of Magdala, may have actually stood in this synagogue at the time. But what they've discovered was this limestone table, and they call it the Magdala Stone, and it's a very... Ornate, carved, symbolically carved limestone table, they're saying there the, the archaeologist's interpretation of it was that this table is a three-dimensional representation of Herod's temple or the second temple of Jerusalem, you know the the model of King Solomon's temple, and that this represented that, and it was found where it would be considered the holy of holies in the synagogue as they excavated this. And though they call it a six-petal rosette, uh, this major carving, the most significant carving on the top of the table, the six-petal rosette is the same way of saying this is what is known by many as the seed of life. And it's that six-petal almost lotus symbol that you compare more to the Eastern cultures of the Buddhist and Hindu. But you have this beautiful uh, six-petal lotus, these overlapping arcs of you, know, you create with circles. And they're saying that, the archaeologists are saying this symbolizes the curtain that's described in the Bible and in Solomon's temple between the outer chamber and the inner chamber to the holy of holies. That's, this represented of coming, going through and bringing heaven and earth together itself. They themselves are interpreting this, that we're seeing this message, whether it's in the time of Christ in Israel, in ancient cultures, in the East or in the West, that the purposes of all these cultures, the, our journey as a humanity and as our individuals is exactly that to bring that heaven and earth together within ourselves to raise our consciousness up. You know, whether you want to call it raising the Kundalini or bringing ourselves to a beautific vision in the Western traditions, it is about being in contact with that spirituality. It's just incredible. This is the theme Again, throughout the Casey readings in so many different levels, but also throughout the world and and throughout humanity's journey. And I just hope more and more will share it.
0: I'm going to jump out of Israel for a second and let's go to America. A lot of people consider America pretty much a newly discovered land, with the original inhabitants being what we know as the American Indian. Actually, how far back does America go, according to Casey? What were his readings on that? and where did it all begin with regard to civilization?
1: That's actually a a fascinating subject in the readings, and and there's some very interesting information. I wish they'd pursued it more, but I also understand people were really very fascinated uh, with the uh, Egyptian uh, past cultures and Inca and Maya, though those are actually part of the Americas. When they talk about the populations of America, they talk about the Americas. Just as some background, actually, pre-Columbian before the... 1400s, they figured there was a population of North and South America of about 57 million people. Unfortunately, uh, when they were visited by Europe, they didn't have the immunities to many of the diseases and the populations were wiped out in many cases. But to really put this in context is that the time when Casey was giving his readings in the 1920s and 1930s, uh, maybe just the very early 1940s, the migrations or any human beings in the Americas, particularly North America, was given a time of no more than 4,000 BC. To put this into perspective of Casey's time, and Casey was talking about migrations into the, not only in the South America, but the North American areas, interestingly tied to the uh, the destructions of Atlantis. He saw, uh, he gave readings that Atlantis it was destroyed over three different uh, events, and there were migrations at each time. So he put dates of about fifty thousand B.C. to migrations of of human populations into North America, about twenty eight thousand B.C. and about ten thousand B.C. Now, again, this, he was talking about this in the 30s when the archaeologists of the time and anthropologists were saying there was no one in North America before 4000 B.C. So they were really looking at him at askance. Uh, very long story short, you, know, you may have heard of the Clovis uh, culture, and that was what they called the Clovis points from New Mexico at 4000 B.C., and they pushed it back a little bit, you know, in the 50s and 60s to about 6,000 B.C., but nowhere near the 10,000 or 25,000 or 50,000 that Casey spoke about. And it took actually uh, a huge meeting of uh, archaeologists and anthropologists in 1997 uh, because people were stuck that, nope, nope, there was no one here before about 8,000 B.C. And there was more and more evidence coming up until it was almost have to force the issue in 1997 to get them to admit to about a 10,000 BC period. Now that was in 1997. Now they have caught up with what Edgar Casey was saying of one of the migrations of 10,000 BC, but there's more research going on that's absolutely fascinating. Uh, along the eastern seaboard in six different sites, they have found what they call salutrian tips. And these salutrian tips are Just like Clovis tips are named after a culture, but this was a culture that made these arrow and stone tips in Europe, and they existed around 22,000, 25,000 BC. So, this is kind of again, archaeologists are kind of scratching their head because they're finding them at six, they found them so far at six different sites along. Uh, the eastern co- uh, coast of America. I mean, that you have Cactus Hill in Virginia as actually one place. There's in uh, South Carolina the Topper site as to another. And actually, uh, Dr. Armstrong from the University of South Carolina, who's doing some incredible research uh, at the Topper site in South Carolina, has found evidence of 25,000 B.C., let alone 10,000 B.C. civilization uh being here and has gone down now the point of evidence of fires of of human made fires at the fifty thousand b c mark so yes the everything keeps getting pushed back further if you fortunately uh, if if you look at it where it started in the in the thirties at four thousand b c it's clear twenty five thousand b c with evidence at fifty thousand b c so Science is learning and fortunately evolving in itself, and the evidence is uh, getting more and more solid to show these. And it's I find it quite interesting and curious that the migration periods that Edgar Cayce mentioned in the 30s at a time when people would have said, this is science fiction, are now fitting the timelines that are being discovered uh, by the anthropologists and archaeologists themselves in North America.
0: I can still recall in school... I learned that the first humans to come across to North America came across the Bering Strait, and that was maybe 4,000 years ago. According to Casey's readings, civilizations arrived here much earlier. What do we know? What are we finding out now? And from where did the first civilizations most likely come? And how right was Casey in his readings? How close did he come?
1: I think with the Casey readings, his accuracy is getting better and better as science is getting better to able to research these things where we now have DNA research that we didn't have before, kind of putting in perspective as I'd mentioned earlier in his time, they didn't think anybody was in the North America area before four thousand b c as as kind of was taught. Kind of like, you know, they used to say the pyramids in in Egypt were built by slaves, and that was what I was growing up with. Now they've discovered that, oh, no, it wasn't slaves. These are just working people, you know, it wasn't that kind of... uh workforce whatsoever. So in the populations of America and where they're coming from, science is trying to find that mitochondrial eve, as they uh, talk about, uh, and where these civilizations came from. uh, And they're tracking more and more. Uh, One of the interesting things on the Solutrean culture of about 22,000 BC, it was along the Iberian Peninsula or that Spain-Portugal area, you know, and a little bit of France, which is in the same area of the Basque, who is the the, the Basque in the Pyrenees Mountains are very unique. Uh, they have a unique mitochondrial DNA, unique uh, uh, blood type, and even actually unique skull structure and language that
0: still is an enigma and, and puzzles the archaeologists of Europe today. Do any recent DNA discoveries link up with Casey's readings in any way? The Iroquois, the the interestingly, there is, and I don't know what
1: it is specifically, but the Iroquois have some unique uh, mitochondrial DNA. Uh, that they're finding and what is very curious or interesting with that is that in the casey readings he talks about those migrations during those times of destruction of atlantis that he stated that the royal iroquois were some of the remains of the atlantis uh, migration when they have this again their own unique uh, dna as we've been told so you have these incredible links and Links from the Casey readings that the science wasn't even close to that. It would be considered science fiction at the time, but science is now actually validating more and more as examples have been given uh, in this talk of what exactly Casey was talking about. It's catching up uh, to him.
0: One real interesting item of mention, and that is Casey's studies on the Essenes, E S S E N E S, I believe is the correct spelling of that. Casey did a lot of readings. Uh, on the Essenes. Very, very little was known at the time he did those readings back in the 30s and 40s. What have we found out since, and how much of his readings have come to light as being uh, fairly accurate regarding the Essenes and their and their culture and their writings?
1: Yeah, that is a, a very fascinating area because Edgar Cayce was talking about the Essenes at a time where there was really nothing known about them, the, the the name was known, but as to their what they were about, their group, their culture, so to speak, and any details was really very unknown. But he gave, in over a hundred, I think over a hundred and twenty readings, he spoke about the Essenes, and uh, how you know how how they functioned. Uh, he, you know, Jesus and many of his followers uh, were involved with the Essenes. Uh, and, and their purposes and the fact that, that, that you know, in many ancient cultures, or at, at, at least during this time, they were patriarchies that the males dominated. One of the things he talked about these scenes was that they, they treated males and females equally. In many aspects along these lines, as they did a day-to-day living and, and their social uh, functioning and their, so, their social setup. And again, Casey died in 1995, excuse me, 1945, and then lo and behold in nineteen five and then in nineteen forty seven the Dead Sea Scrolls are discovered and as they able to, and weren't translated until much later, but as they translated them and, and looked more into these Dead Sea Scrolls, they're speaking about the Essenes, this exact group that Edgar's talking about, and how as to their social framework and their uh, equality between sexes, they're finding that was exactly the case from the Dead Sea Scrolls. So here is again more information that Casey spoke about that was not available and didn't become available till after he had two years after he had passed, showing this incredible unique gift he had and the accuracy of it.
0: One area of interest that Casey spoke about a lot that I'm very interested in is the Akashic records, the Hindu philosophy. What did Casey give us on that? Yeah, the the Casey readings and this kind of came later
1: on. He, uh, his his own psychic ability developed. Actually, he he, he would talk about that in the readings. Whereas his, as he developed his own spirituality, it's the f- development of spirituality that that the psychic abilities is almost a a side effect of raising one's spirituality. Talking of the Akasha or the Akashic record. Started to uh, come up in the readings. Now, the Akasha is a Hindu uh, Eastern term, and in the Akashic record, basically it's seen as a record of the entire universe and a record that goes beyond uh, space and time. It's sometimes interpreted as the universal mind, that it incorporates uh, all consciousness within it and, and all records of humanity time and space of the universe itself are held in it that uh, there is no time you know everything at once this is the the all uh, so to speak uh, it's interestingly the akasha is is the hindu and the concept is based on sound is, is that it's kind of core framework base which we talked about uh Science now coming to the conclusion that everything came from sound, from vibration. This is an ancient uh, Hindu philo- uh, thought process, also in that vibration. I think about it, you know, the term, the word for, uh, in the Eastern terms for creation is om, you know, the word of creation, the sound of creation. And in, in Western traditions, how was the universe created? God spoke, said, Let there be light. So, before there was light, there was sound, there was vibration. So this akasha was that you know, framework, that web, if you will, of vibration, of sound, and sometimes defined as the universal mind. And it would be not always a, a place that uh, in his psychic readings, Edgar could raise his consciousness and up to gain information. It, it's kind of fascinating because fortunately they had asked in readings for himself, Edgar, how do you do this? And we got very fortunate because they asked him more than once. The first time they asked him, it you know he he spoke about that he, his consciousness was able to rise up and connect with all others' subconscious minds. That he was able to connect with the subconscious minds of millions upon millions of others. Actually, this is back along the lines of T. L. Chardin's philosophy, that came that he wrote about decades later. That was the first reading, as the subconscious mind. So it's really fascinating. Again, as he developed his own spirituality, raised his own consciousness, they fortunately asked him a similar question 22 years later, and he had a developed answer. His own spirituality, his own psychic abilities in the Akasha had developed now his answer was that not only was he able to raise his consciousness up and connect and tap into the subconscious minds of millions of others to get garner the necessary information is that he could also raise it higher up into the spiritual world so to speak and up into the cosmic or universal mind of the akashic record so his own abilities Developed as as he practices uh, his path, this journey of bringing heaven and earth together to that universal, some call it the universal mind, the cosmic consciousness, the God consciousness, depending on your your speaker. But he he had evolved himself
0: in consciousness to that point. Casey's readings transcend all philosophy and religion. But for a moment, bringing us to the Christian religion, what did Casey tell us about Jesus?
1: Jesus was very important to Edgar Casey. He, he was a devout Christian himself. Uh, he was known to have read the Bible completely through for every year of his life. Uh, he was very well versed and it was known as a, an incredible and wonderful uh, Sunday school teacher and, and truly lived it, uh, uh, you know, that's, that Christianity in his life daily. But he took it back. Beyond not only the individual of Jesus, when he spoke about Christianity and its you know personal importance to him in his philosophy, not only conscious but you know in in the readings and in his conscious state, he looked at it not only as the incredible example of of Jesus, of uh, being that that son of God and son of man. He was both. He brought heaven and earth together in himself as that example, but he took it even to the, a greater unity. Because when he talked about this raised consciousness that we've been discussing here, he talked about it as a Christ consciousness, but a universal Christ consciousness, that it went beyond the appellation or, or the designation of any religion, that this was a a perennial philosophy that we all share, that is the journey of humanity, every one of us. And he defined it as a universal Christ consciousness to bringing that within ourselves and to everyone around us.
0: Don Carroll, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. It's been a, it's been a terrific conversation. I'm uh, going to ask you this if, uh, as we're, as we're getting ready to close. If you can describe what the Association for Research and Enlightenment does uh, how our fans can get in touch with the ARE or become members here. What kind of services do they provide, and how can uh, how can I get access to Casey's readings? And for those who are interested, in more information. What are the best paths for them to take?
1: Well, thank you, John. Thank you very much for uh, sharing uh, your time with me and giving me this opportunity to share uh, this ex- my experience with the education materials and the ARE that has been such an incredible positive aspect of my life in all so many facets and how it's helped me uh, day to day in living for myself, for my family, for those around me. Uh, I would suggest probably the, the the straightforward simplest way would be to go on the website, you know, edgarcasey.org or www.edgarcasey.org, uh, where you can see the website, all the things that are offered here, uh, how you can join as a membership, you know, yearly annual membership. And contact there 's a, a huge amount of free information for people to kind of get a taste and a feel of the research that 's done here. Uh, what this organization about is is researching the spirituality, researching these ancient mysteries, uh, meditation uh, mindfulness, uh, all these uh, health benefits uh, of holistic living in mind, body, and spirit in so many aspects. You can see so much of that on the website. And I would suggest to anyone to join. There are different types of memberships because there is so much even more information that's so helpful. And you can reach out from that website and then get gain access even to more information, including all of the Edgar Cayce readings. Uh, you know, 14,306 and, and search them for yourselves because they are so incredible. And conferences, we give tours to these ancient mystery sites. We have uh, conferences around the area. We have the Search for God material that is absolutely Amazing! If if you're looking to expand your spiritual life and to apply it into day-to-day world, I would greatly suggest some of these things. And you'll know them by their fruits. If you look at this, if you try this, you'll see the incredible results and the expansion of of your own life that'll offer you that information again. You know the, whether it's spiritual, whether it's the mental of of of, of this research, this, these ancient mysteries or the, uh, the holistic medical side of it. They have a wonderful spa here and that gives many different types of treatment. You can see that on the web page and then the holistic uh, health information that Casey's offered through the years that has been validated in so many aspects down to you know diets and exercise. This is the place to come to really unite all of that within oneself. And again, John, thank you for this opportunity uh, to be on your show uh, with you and be hosted by the podcast of a thousand and one heroes. It's really greatly appreciated uh, the work you do and the, the sharing of this, I think, very important information. And I'm I'm really excited for your listeners also, because you've, I know you've got a uh, Kevin Tadeshi, who is the CEO and a great author and and on uh, dreams and dream interpretation that will uh, really share so much depth of, of this organization and the Edgar Cayce material, and also Peter Woodbury, who's been with us for so long and shares so much and does so much with past lives and past life regressions that I'm sure you're, uh, that uh, your listeners will enjoy. And again, thank, thank you, and, and thank you to the 1001 Heroes for uh, giving this, uh, us this opportunity.
0: Stay tuned for upcoming episodes of the Edgar Casey Interviews, where we'll be asking the question: Is there life after death? What's on the other side? And do dreams predict the future? Among others, according to the readings of one of history's greatest psychics, Edgar Casey. We love these reviews that have been pouring in on Apple Podcasts, OK Writes just a few days ago. Interesting and educational. Keep 'em coming. Thanks. And this one from Mom of Three amazing stories we love this podcast so many great stories even my boys love to listen thanks to all of you for being such great fans for sharing our shows for checking in with us at facebook.com forward slash one thousand one heroes and for your reviews one thousand one stories podcast network now has three shows this one then one thousand one classic short stories and tales and one thousand one stories for the road our new show You can catch all three at www.1001storiespodcast.com or wherever good podcasts are found. We launch our shows every Sunday night at 8 Eastern Standard Time. It usually appears on iTunes at about 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We leave all the good links in the show notes for you. Podcasts being what they are, they're available 24-7, 365 on the Internet. And if you're ever lost for finding them, Just go to Google and search 1001 Heroes. You'll you'll find them. Thank you. Bye-bye.